0: Good morning, New Life Church. It's always a joy and a privilege to be worshiping with you all. And it's always a privilege and an honor to be bringing you God's Word today. And I just want to thank Pastor Gareth and the elders for having confidence in me to deliver God's Word today. You know, one of my favorite books is called Desiring God, and it's by John Piper. And in it, he mentions a book called Light of the Nations by J. Edwin Orr, and this is a story about the great awakening in America in the 1800s, and the story goes like this. Approaching the middle of the 19th century, the glow of earlier religious awakenings had faded. The city here, referring to New York City, like most of America, was prosperous and felt little need to call on God. Then came the late 1850s, where secular and religious conditions combined to bring a crash. The third great panic in American history swept away the giddy structure of speculative wealth. Thousands of merchants were forced to the wall as banks failed and railroads went into bankruptcy. Factories were shut down and vast numbers were thrown out of unemployment, where New York City had more than 30,000 idle men. And in October 1857, the hearts of the people were thoroughly weaned from speculation and uncertain gain, while hunger and despair stared them in their face. But on July the 1st, in 1857, a quiet and zealous businessman named Jeremiah Lamphere took up an appointment as a city missionary in downtown New York. Burdened by such a need, Jeremiah Lanfear decided to invite others to join him in a noonday prayer, which was to be held on a Wednesday once a week. And he therefore distributed this handbill, and this handbill said the following, How often should we pray? He answers this and he says, As often as the language of prayer is in my heart, as often as I see my need for help, as often as I feel the power of temptation, as often as I am made sensible of any spiritual declension or feel the aggression of a worldly spirit, in prayer we leave the business of time for that eternity and the intercourse with men for the intercourse with God. So a day prayer meeting is held every Wednesday from 12 o'clock to 1 o'clock in the consistory building in the rear of the North Dutch Reformed Church, corner of Fulton and William Streets. The meeting is intended to give the merchants, mechanics, clerks, strangers, and businessmen generally an opportunity to stop and call on the name of God And the perplexity is incident to their respective avocations. It will continue for one hour, but it is also designed for those who may find it inconvenient to stay more than five or ten minutes, or even to those who can uh, spare the entire hour. So accordingly, at 12 noon, on the 23rd of September in 1857, the door opened and faithful Lanfier took his seat, to await the response of his invitation. So five minutes went by, and no one appeared. The missionary paced up and down in conflict of fear and faith. Ten minutes elapsed, still no one came. Fifteen minutes went by, and Lamphere was yet alone. Twenty minutes, twenty-five minutes, and thirty minutes. And then at twelve-thirty, a step was heard on the stairs, and the first person appeared, then another, and another, and another, until there were six people, and the meeting began. And on the following Wednesday, there were over 40 intercessors. Thus, in the first week of October 1857, it was decided to hold the prayer meeting daily instead of weekly, and within six months, 10,000 businessmen were gathered daily for prayer in New York. And within two years, there were over a million converts were added to the American churches. Now, undoubtedly, the greatest revival in New York's colorful history was sweeping the city. And it was such an order to make the whole nation curious. There was no fanaticism. There was no hysteria. It was simply an incredible movement of the people to pray. And the joy of Jeremiah Lamphere was this great Bible verse, Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. So this morning, we continue our sermon series, and we find ourselves again in the book of Acts, where the title of our series is The Gospel in Motion. And we're still in chapter 4. Remember, last week, Brother Pedro preached about the persecution of Peter and of John. And if you recall, they were being held captive because of teaching and preaching in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the resurrection of the dead. But now this week, we find that Peter and John have been released from prison, and they return to their brothers and their believers, and they pray They pray a prayer for boldness. Now, this is the title of my message today, A Prayer for Boldness. So let's go ahead and read chapter 4, beginning at verse 23 together. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, And when they had prayer, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, The apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each other as any had need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you and praise you for this blessed day that you have given us, Father. We know that many went to bed last night and may have not woken up today, Lord. And we just want to praise you for this day. And Lord, as we look at your word today, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit enlightens your word for our hearts, Lord. For we want to be doers of your word, Lord, not only hearers, Lord. We want to be filled with your Holy Spirit, like the apostles were filled with the Spirit. So, Father, may we put all the distractions aside, Lord. May we focus wholeheartedly on you for the next half an hour, Father. May we put our phones away. May we just keep all the distractions aside, Lord. And may we focus on your word, Father. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So before we delve deeper into the text today, let's briefly remind ourselves of where we find ourselves in the book of Acts. To give some context to this particular passage, especially for those who may be joining us for the very first time today. So if you recall, the book of Acts was a sequel to the Gospel of Luke, where Luke, a physician, uh, who was on his travels with the Apostle Paul, was writing to Theophilus. And essentially, he's recording the history of the church. And this is an accurate account of the history of the church, because he wanted Theophilus to have certainty of what was being taught. And of course, us who are reading the the Bible can have certainty that what was being taught is true and it is accurate. So up until this point, we have witnessed that the disciples were gathered in Jerusalem, the capital city of the Jews. And the entire global significance of the gospel of Acts can be summarized in one verse, and that is Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So, just as Jesus had promised, fifty days after Passover, the day of Pentecost arrived, where those who were gathered in the upper room were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues. As the Spirit enabled them. And the Holy Spirit came on this day as the first day or the first fruits of the believers' inheritance. And those gathered into the church were also the first fruits of the full harvest of all the believers to come after. And of course, this marked the beginning of the new covenant age, which will last until Jesus returns. And then the rest of chapter 2 is taken up by what was considered the first major event in the church history, which was the sermon by Peter. And what happened as a result? 3,000 conversions, and this essentially established the church. So we see that the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and, of course, to prayer. And note that the believers were together, and they had everything in common. They sold their property, they sold their possessions, and they gave to anybody who was in need. And they continued to meet together, to pray together, and to praise God for His favor upon their lives. And as a result, the Lord added to their number. Then in chapter 3, we observed the healing of the lame beggar by Peter and John. And upon being healed, the paralyzed man entered the temple, leaping and praising God. And all the people that witnessed this and saw this, they were amazed and astonished at what had happened to him. And of course, if you recall, then Peter then addresses the crowd. And he says uh, to the crowd in Acts chapter 3, verses 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob... The God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and by his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of all. So what was the result of Peter's address? Well, we see that the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees were greatly annoyed with their teaching, with proclaiming in the name of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. So they arrested them, and they placed them into custody until the next day. And if you recall, Brother Pedro taught us and explained in detail the persecution of the apostles and their response to the persecution. So we pick up the story again and we see that Peter and John were released from prison uh, and they, because they were unable to punish them. This was because the people were praising God for what had happened. For the miracle performed on the lame beggar who was more than 40 years old, which we see in Acts chapter 4, 21 to 22. And what we essentially witnessed was the condition of the Jews. They rejected the testimony which was addressed to them in grace and in love. They threatened Peter and John by telling them not to preach and teach in the name of Jesus, essentially What they were saying is, if you keep preaching in the name of Jesus, we will arrest you and we will beat you. We will harm your family. Remember what we did to Jesus, we'll do it to you as well. So again, they were rejecting the gospel of Christ. But notice the response of Peter and John. What was the first thing that they did? While well, it is clear what, the, what they didn't do, they didn't think to themselves, well, guys, I think we just dodged a bullet here. Yeah? We better lay low for a while, maybe go into hiding. The task of witnessing the gospel is too difficult and has too many consequences associated with it. Or alternatively, they didn't puff their chests up with arrogance and they didn't think to themselves, well, we've done our job now. Time to relax. Time to put our feet up. Um, time for someone else to take the risk. No. What did they do? Well, we're witnesses in uh, verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. They decided to return to their place of safety where they met with like-minded individuals who were on the same page. So, who were willing to spread the gospel of Christ, who were willing to suffer for the gospel of Christ. They shared their troubles and their difficulties with the congregation. And here we see the power of unity, my very first point. So You must remember, in the early days, by all outward appearances, Christianity, the followers uh, of Jesus, were essentially weak. They were few in number, and they had inexperienced leadership. They were commanded not to fight back and not to be militant. And they were opposed to the institutions that had been around for centuries. So they had many enemies against them. However, despite the opposition to the gospel, we see that their numbers were growing. And by all accounts, to this date, there were 3,000 converts, And then 5,000 converts. So there were a significant number of followers around. So Peter and John returned to the believers. They went through this horrible ordeal where their faith and their ideology were challenged. They may have felt vulnerable. They may have felt insecure. Perhaps they felt depressed or even low in mood. Perhaps they felt like giving up. But they didn't. They returned to the fellow believers to get re energized, to get reinvigorated, to renew their strength. And you remember, there is strength in numbers. Pastor Pedro taught us in the Psalms, in Psalms uh, 133, where he said this Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Psalm 133, verses 1. Here yeah, the psalmist compares unity to like precious oil on the head running down the beard of Aaron and Hemen, which falls down the mountains of Zion. This paints a picture of rich spiritual blessing, health, and vitality. So brothers and sisters, yes, a lesson in this for us today. Often when we face trials and tribulations, When we face times of difficulties and challenges, we may feel like retreating, where we go into a cave or into a shell, where we don't want other people to know that we are feeling vulnerable, that we are hurting, where the world teaches us to stand on our feet and face our problems head on, not to show any weakness. It is at these times that our faith is really tested And maybe we start to think, well, if there's a God that really loves us, why do we suffer like this? Why do we face such trials? Or why is there so much oppression and injustice in the world today? And I'm sure Peter and John may have been tempted to think like this. Now, although these are very important questions that we need to ask, we need to be confident and sure that God is able to meet us in the midst of our struggles, our trials, and our tribulations. And interestingly, it is the people who have gone through the greatest suffering in life that shows the strongest faith. They are able to testify to the presence of God in their lives, which gives them strength and a sense of peace in their time of pain and suffering. Now, Nikki Gumbel writes about the Ten Worm Sisters, Corrie Ten and her sister Betsy were middle-aged Christian women in Holland when World War II erupted. They resolved to conceal fleeing Jews from the Nazis, and they rescued many. But these sisters were caught. They were arrested and sent to Ravensbrück concentration camp. And Betsy Ten while lying, dying in the concentration camp, turned to his sister, Cory and said this, We must tell them that there is no pit so deep that he is not deeper still. They will listen to us, Cory, because we have been there. So faith involves trusting in the Lord. And we have learned this lesson through the Psalms, where the people of God trusted in God through their trials, through the oppressions, through injustice, and now we see the apostles trusting the Lord in the face of opposition by returning to the people of faith. And their first instinct was to share with one another what had happened. And of course, this led to corporate prayer, as we have seen. And sometimes, I think our view of church is more individualistic than corporate. And unfortunately, this COVID pandemic has increased our isolation and where we may be tempted to become more individualistic in our worship so please brothers and sisters don't fall into this trap join us on a thursday night i know it's a thursday evening and it may be after work and you may be feeling tired and i know it may be a distance for you to travel to get there but please can i encourage you join us it is so important that you gather with us. The Lord's people should be committed to unity. As believers in Christ, we should love each other's company. We should delight to be in each other's company, especially when we have important information to share with each other for our good and for the glory of God. And so often, people go to church and sit next to people that they don't know And then they leave without getting to know people. Many do not have meaningful fellowship with other believers in the course of the week. And he has a perfect opportunity for us to gather together in home groups. So home groups and prayer groups are vital for, for our spiritual health. So please, can I again encourage you, join a home group. This is a vital part of our ministry we need to develop a sense of community, of belonging to a body of Christians, where brothers and sisters can gather together and want to gather together, when time, especially when times are difficult, where we can share together, where we can pray together. So as we continue our story, we see that what did the disciples do? Well, they prayed. And yeah, we witness the power of prayer. And this is my second point. So much like Jeremiah, Lamphere, we witness the apostles raising their voice to God. And they say this, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So they lifted their voices together. They prayed vocally, not silently in their minds. Now there's something about vocal prayer. We are able to focus our thoughts more effectively when we speak out in prayer. And notice, they prayed together. But one commentator suggests this, and he says, That does not mean that they all prayed at once. That would have been confusion. disorderly meetings, a number of people talking at the same time in a boisterous way, with outward demonstration, is an evidence that the Holy Spirit... Is not leading, for God is not a God of disorder. They prayed in unity. There was no strife or contention among them. It's not as if one group decided, well, we'll pray for this, and the other group said, no, no, we'll pray for that. They had the same mind when they prayed. And by praying, it clearly demonstrated that Peter and John's experience did not frighten or discourage the other disciples. It only exhilarated them. They took confidence in God's sovereign control of all events, including their sufferings. And they were also comforted to know that the opposition that they were f- uh, facing was foreseen in the Old Testament, which we witness in verse 25 and 26. But we'll get to that. But first notice how they address God. They have a clear understanding of who they are addressing. And sometimes when we pray, we may forget who we are praying to. Or worse yet, we pray to an imaginary God, a God that, uh, a God of our own ideas. But the disciples had power in prayer because they knew who they prayed to. And what did they do? They, prayed, they addressed God and they said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. They acknowledge God as the righteous creator. And if you recall, the book of Genesis begins with God creating the world and creating the universe. This all came about through his spoken word, and it all came from nothing. And Greg Gilbert, in What is the Gospel, reminds us and says this. It is not like it came from some pre-existing material and molded it like clay into all different things. No, God said, let there be light. And it was so. And And the creation displays His glory and it displays His power. Because the psalmist tells us, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims His handiwork. Psalm 19 verses 1. And Romans chapter 1, verses 20 tells us this. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. So the apostles elevate God to His rightful place. He is the creator. We are the creature Greg Gilbert reminds us, we are owned by Him. We are made by Him. Sorry, we are owned by Him, and we are accountable to Him. So, just like the apostles, we need to go into a posture of prayer on our knees, and we need to keep the sovereign Lord at the forefront of our minds. We need to fear Him. We need to respect Him, just like the apostles did. And the apostles continue in prayer, and they quote Psalm 2. And they prayed according to the scriptures. So, Psalm 2 David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, maybe you might be thinking, Well, what has Psalm 2 got to do with this Apostle's prayer? So as you recall, we've been learning in the book of Psalms that Psalms 1 and 2 open the Psalter. And they paint a contrasting picture. A picture between the righteous way of life and, of course, the wicked way of life. And in Psalm 2, we observe that the Gentile kingdoms were trying to overrule or overthrow the rule of the Israelite nation. Much like the religious leaders were trying to overthrow the apostles in those days. However, we know that God made David and his descended kings uh, in order to fulfill his promise to Abraham, which was to be the blessing of the nations. And Psalm 2 is also a psalm that expresses confidence in God and his victory. We know that God is king, that he is the ruler in Zion. And although his servants may be bound Although his servants may be imprisoned, the word of God will never be bound. And what we learn from the book of Acts is that the powerful word of the gospel extends from Jerusalem to the rest of the world. So by quoting this psalm, it is clear to see that the apostles were well prepared for opposition to the gospel because they were confident that God was in control. They were not taken by surprise. Much like David had all his enemies, and Christ had enemies, uh, and he taught them to expect enemies and to expect trials and tribulations in their name, so too the apostles were to expect their enemies. But now also notice what the apostles ask for. While well, they don't ask to be released from their trials and their difficulties, they don't ask for prestige, or for wealth, or for comfort. In fact, they appear to be asking for more confrontation. They appear to be totally consumed with the glory of God and, of course, His cause. And with the great commission that Jesus commanded them to undertake. And this is the same command that applies us today. So the apostles, they continue in the prayer, and they say, "'And now, Lord, look upon their threats.'" And grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. They ask for boldness. They ask for courage. They ask for confidence in spreading the gospel. And they knew that this was just the beginning. They had irked the authorities And they they knew the full consequences of their actions. And because they saw the light of their circumstances in the light of God's word, they were able to recognize that the evil of man never operated outside of God's control. That their enemies and the enemies of Jesus could only do to them what God allowed them to do. And this would have brought them a tremendous amount of peace. And this brings us a tremendous amount of peace, just knowing that whatever passes our way, whatever trials and tribulations we may face, whatever difficulties we have, they must come through the hands of God first. And also, notice they do not ask to perform miracles themselves. They understood that healing came from the hands of Jesus, from heavens above So what was the result of the prayer? Well, we see that their petition was granted, that God gave them a sign of the acceptance of their prayer. The place was shaken so that their faith may be established and may be unshaken. God gave them a greater degree of the Spirit, as they were all filled with the Holy Spirit more than ever. And what we have been learning in the book of Acts is that being Spirit-filled is not the same as the baptism of the Spirit. And we must be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. Make our immersion in Him a constant experience. So this not only encouraged them, but enabled them to speak the Word of God with boldness. And this was a gift. The gift of boldness was from God that they received through prayer. It was not something that they tried to work up in themselves. Now there's one thing I'd like to address with regards to prayer. One particular objection is that when we come to God and ask Him for things, that we place our interest above God's, or we place our happiness above God's honor. So there's a question that we need to ask ourselves. Can prayer be self centered? And John Piper answers this question and he says, Well, if you passionately desire to be happy, then yes, I suppose prayer may be self centered. And remember that not all prayers are for God's name to be hallowed or for his kingdom to come. There is a type of prayer that James condemns, and he says this in James chapter 4, verses 3 to 5. that he has made to dwell in us. Certainly startling words by James. He calls us adulterous people. If we pray like this, it makes a mockery of God's word. And John Piper tells us that he pictures the church as the wife of God, that God has made himself and given himself to us for our enjoyment. Thus, It is adultery when we seek to be friends with the world. And if we seek from the world the pleasures that we should be seeking in God, we are essentially unfaithful to our marriage vows. And that's what's worse, is that when we go to our Heavenly Father and actually pray for resources with which to commit adultery with the world, then this is a very wicked thing, brothers and sisters. It is as though we ask our husband for money to hire male prostitutes to provide the pleasure that we don't find in him. So please be aware that these prayers are wicked. They are self-centered. They are evil. But now you ask me the question, well, how do we avoid this trap? Well, simply put, we look to the example of Jesus. We look to the example of the apostles In our text today. We humble ourselves as little children. And put on no airs of self-sufficiency. But run into the joy of the Father's embrace. And John Piper explains that. Well what we have learned from the Bible. Is that the Bible. Is that God's interest is to magnify the fullness. Of his glory by spilling over in mercy to us. Let me just repeat that again. What the Bible teaches us is that God's interest is to magnify the fullness of His glory by spilling over in mercy to us. Therefore, the pursuit of our interest and our happiness is never above Him, but in Him. It's always in God. Just as the apostles did in this prayer. They were well aware of Jesus' teaching. They were well aware of what Jesus said in the Gospel of John. And Jesus said in John Chapter 14, verses 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And John, chapter 16, verses 24. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. So here we see that the pursuit of our joy And the pursuit of God's glory is one and the same thing. And where do we see this happening? Where God gets the glory and we as His children get the joy? is in prayer, the act of prayer. So as Christians, we need to be devoted to prayer. We need to be on our knees and earnest in prayer. Like a thirsty deer that kneels down to drink at the brook. And the Bible teaches us to pray sincerely. The Bible teaches us to pray directly to the Father in heaven. And the Bible teaches us to pray confidently, to pray continuously without ceasing. And we need to take advantage of getting together and praying for our church, to be praying for one another, to be praying for the spread of the gospel to those who are lost and who are dying in their sin to pray for boldness, to pray for courage in spreading the gospel of Jesus, just like the apostle did in our text. So now my third and final point, we see the power of sharing. We see the power of the Holy Spirit, and we witness the power of God's presence in our lives. The believers were of one heart and soul, and bear in mind that they have grown to more than 8,000 convents by now. So despite their large numbers, they were united together as one. There was no disunity whatsoever. There was only harmony with one another. They observed the same commands and they pursued the same interests. Their souls were knitted together. And Yahweh we witness a true church, a united church a church that was faithful to God's mission, a church that demonstrated equality, equality with the doctrine and equality with each other. They sold their resources. They sold their lands and possessions and put it at the feet of the apostles. There was not a needy person among them. They lacked for nothing. They had bread to eat. They had clothes to wear. They had all the necessities of life. What a beautiful example of a church that looks after each other. Imagine if New Life Church members were committed like this. How radical would that be? So in conclusion, what we learn about prayer is that the Apostles' example in this passage demonstrates the power of unity. It demonstrates the power of prayer, and it demonstrates the power of sharing. Pastor Gareth shared with us once, and he said, The main purpose of man should be to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And John Piper teaches us again in the Bible, shows us that prayer preserves the unity between God's glory and our joy. That prayer Pursues joy in fellowship with Jesus. And we need to share this power with others. That prayer pursues the glory of God by fearing God and realizing that our only hope is in Him. And in prayer, we can come to God. We can admit our poverty. We can admit our brokenness. We can admit our bankruptcy. And we can be confident and sure that in prayer... Our prosperity and our our reward is as as a result of God's mercy upon us. So the question I want to ask you today is this, and it's a, a question that I've been asking myself all week, is how important is prayer in your daily life? Do you value it like the apostles did? Do you value it like Jesus did? Do you prioritize prayer in your daily life? Do you plan for it? Do you put time aside for it? Do you set a place aside for it? So today, I want to encourage you to prioritize prayer in your life, to prioritize prayer with one another, to plan for it, to set time aside for it, to set a place aside for it. Don't be distracted by the busyness of life. Make this the day that you turn to prayer. And may it be for the glory of God and the fullness of our joy. Let's pray. Father, we just want to thank you and praise you for your word, Lord. We know that it is for the benefit of our lives, Father. So that we pray that we can come to you confidently in prayer, knowing that whatever trials and tribulations we face, whatever difficulties that we encounter, we know that they come through your sovereign hands, Father. And thank you that you are in control, Lord. Thank you that you are the author of life and that you are the author of salvation, that you have saved us because we have repented of our sin. So, Father, as we go through this week and as as we go through the rest of our lives, may we put your word, may we put prayer, a priority in our lives. And we ask this in your son's precious and holy name, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.